1: Welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, and this week we will be talking to psychologist Elaine Caskett who's written a book about the idea of a digital afterlife. What happens to our online footprints when we shuffle off this mortal coil? First though, I'm joined in the studio by Prospect's Deputy Editor, Steve Bloomfield, as well as our Commissioning Editor, Alex Dean, to discuss the latest in culture and politics. Alex! First up, the MPs um, have had a week off, Uh, many of them looking very much like they needed it by the time uh, the the clock um, stopped ticking for Easter. But your brain has kept worrying about what they're up to, what they're thinking about.
2: Well, the most striking thing for me over the past few days uh, in Westminster has been uh, surveys of Tory members and who they'd like to see as the next leader of their party. Uh, And It's something that we've been hearing quite a lot, that Boris Johnson's star has waned. And that's that's something that I keep hearing over the last few months, but not if this survey is anything to go by. He's he's right out in the lead amongst Tory members for who they'd like to see as the next leader and prime minister.
1: Is this a conservative home? This
2: is con home, yeah, particularly is the one that caught my interest. Um, So uh, Boris did very, very well. Um, Dominic Raab did very well. To get down to kind of the hope for candidates for Remainers like Amber Rudd you've really got to start looking outside the top 10 (laughs) it's uh, even Reese Mogg I mean that was you know changing clearly he's not a Remainer um, uh, anything like a darling of the Remain side but Reese Mogg is someone that people kept talking about and he's actually um, been knocked outside the top 10 really the ascent of Boris (laughs) is the story
1: and so he's Streets Head, then Dominic Rob. which other names do we need to... Uh,
2: Gove is up there, um, but he's down already, you're down to kind of 6%. Um,
1: and What about these characters who want to have it both ways, a bit like Jeremy Hunt and Javid?
2: Then you get into kind of Hunt and Javid territory, and actually Rory Stewart was, was somewhere in there as well. Mm. Um, other is quite high, <laughs> so <laughs> as always, kind of like when you get... Uh, don't know is as popular as Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. Um, But I guess the real story beneath the individual personalities is the fact that we're in this remarkable situation where the next Prime Minister is likely going to be chosen by an incredibly small increasingly (laughs) ageing selectorate of Tory members.
1: Yeah, we have someone writing in don't we to the the upcoming issue of Prospect saying they think the true number of members is down at 10,000 which sounds a bit melodramatic to me but even if it's 50,000 or whatever, this is a tiny number of people picking a Prime Minister directly almost certainly, and for the first time
2: ever in history. Yeah, and you've got to wonder if that's, um, you know, a problem for democracy, and I I think it probably is, <laughs> because I mean it clearly, um, you know, it's not a uh, kind of imposing concrete limits on democracy we could you know if we vote for our mps and if they don't like a government they can check it out and they can trigger a general election and Mm. so on but it's kind of a de facto (laughs) limiting on democracy in a way that seems quite concerning this group are clearly not representative of the public
1: i mean also steve you've got to wonder haven't you about how it's going to go down because if you replace margaret thatcher with a gray man like john major that's one thing or even a gray woman dare i say like theresa may after David Cameron goes, you can resist it for a bit, but there's a lot of people who don't pay a lot of attention to politics who would start sitting up and saying, hey, what's this about if Boris Johnson became prime minister?
3: Yes, but I think actually whoever becomes prime minister, whether it's Boris Johnson or anyone else, they are going to want to have a general election pretty quickly because... Uh, While the leader might change, the parliamentary arithmetic is not going to change one little bit. You will still have a minority government um, and a minority government ruled by a party which is horrendously split and can't agree on anything. Hmm. So there is not going to be any support for uh, any sort of Brexit deal, regardless of who's prime minister. So if Boris Johnson becomes PM... You know, and he decides he wants to go for no deal. Well, he can't because he simply isn't going to have the votes. The only way he's going to have the votes for his former Brexit is if there is a general election and he wins a majority. And his hope and or whoever the prime minister is, their hope will be is that there is enough of a push, that they are seen as enough of a fresh face, uh, that if they say, look, vote for me and then and then we can just get on with it and move on to other things, that that will help them get over the line, win a general election with enough majority to get through their Brexit deal. Um, So, uh, yes, it's supremely undemocratic that, you know, whether it's 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 people get to directly choose who the next prime minister is. Um, But, you know... John Major was was chosen by even fewer people, you know, a couple of hundred people, um, as in the MPs. It, as in the MPs, we think they're special. Um, so, you know, I, I I don't think it's sort of quite as as, as new as a, as everyone seems to be making out. And if we go even further back, you know, Alec Douglas Hume emerged from a room of of smoke. So, um, he wasn't a magician. That was just you know, it was a smoke filled room. Uh, so, I you know, it's you can maybe say baby steps in the right direction.
1: Um. And uh, Alex, j- just in terms of um, like what would happen with Brexit, I mean, my own feeling is it, you'd be in a position where you've got a Conservative leader who's very, very committed to um, leaving on whatever terms, just getting on with it. You've got a parliamentary party that, Steve, as Steve says, that still isn't committed to it. Um, it's quite hard to see a way out apart from a general election. So if there is a democratic outrage here, maybe it will be a Short lived one.
2: I think that's got to be the hope. <laughs> I think I, I, yeah, I hope that Steve's right. <laughs> um, I guess what I mean, I'm trying to kind of pull apart the options, I suppose there's a chance that there could be a push for no deal by default, which doesn't require anything, but then you think we might see a kind of let wind parliament seizing the business of the commons situation.
3: I think so, and I think also, you know, a speaker, someone who had at one stage thought that Theresa May might well, um, head in that direction I think now you've got the situation where there are enough Tory MPs who think that is so damaging that they'll be willing to back a vote of no confidence in the government were that to happen so I just I just can't see I mean you know all these all these options are very unlikely but I really can't see can't see that happening
1: okay Steve you've been um, having a listen to a podcast that's had you thinking in a new way about mental health
3: um Yes, I have indeed. Uh, I've been listening a lot recently to uh, a podcast on Radio X uh, with Ellis James and John Robbins, who are uh, are two comedians, uh, two friends. Uh, Now, you'd think that a program on a, let's face it, pretty blokey uh, radio station uh, would not perhaps be uh, the the sort of thing that would perhaps interest a a prospect reader or prospect listener. Uh, You'd be wrong. It is without doubt the most fascinating uh, program I've ever listened to about uh, masculinity and mental health. Uh, they talk about it in a very very normal way, not as in um, here is a specific part of the show where we're going to talk about it. It's just you know, a normal part of the the everyday discourse, um, and they have built up this incredible community of of listeners. Uh, who have themselves become friends, who talk about um, their lives and their feelings openly and honestly. Um, the reason I've been think- uh, I've been listening to it quite a lot recently is because uh, their podcast is coming to an end. They're about to make a big money move to Radio 5 Live, uh, where they're going to probably find a bit more fame. Um, but I thought it was a, a good moment to just sort of reflect on how they've managed to carve out this sort of really interesting new niche um, to talk about mental health and you know amongst a community of people that that wouldn't
1: normally talk about it so what do we? because it's interesting like if you went back a generation mental health was something it was seen as something that only people who had clear and obvious mental illness needed to worry about you can get your mental health back in order sort of thing um, whereas now it's a much more generic, everyone needs to worry about promoting their own mental health. Which which are they doing? Are they talking just about how you can achieve greater well-being or is it more how we're all kind of beset with anxiety and worries and sadness that that, that we need to drive out somehow? It's a lot on
3: about anxiety and embracing that and accepting that everyone has anxious moments and so you have listeners sharing stories of their own sort of anxious moments or moments of shame. Um, but it's also about... Um, it's also about building friendship. You know, there, there are people who, who wrote in when they were li- when the show was ending, saying, "Look, by listening to you guys, I've become the sort of man that can turn to my best friend, a male friend, and say I love you.'" Um, and that's something I would never have been able to do before I was listening to you. Um, there are also lots of other listeners who said, "Look, just by listening to you, you've helped me through some really dark times." Uh, so it's this sort of combination of, you know being nice friendly amiable people and talking openly honestly and then also um being able to confront those bigger issues when they come up
1: and, and is the core of it a sort of the pair of them working as if you like agony uncles as people in reply to people writing um
3: in? no not so much really it's sort of um it's funny I I know I'm talking about sort of the mental health aspects of it quite so much I d- I don't want to sort of take away from that it's also an incredibly mm. funny show um hosted by two friends just talking about their lives I think that's the key thing and that within that they just accept that there are moments where you know bad things happen and you feel a bit low and you talk about it and it's uh yeah I I think it's it's, it's a it's a really fascinating thing and also I think it's fair to say had Uh, this radio station understood exactly what the show was at the start they probably wouldn't have commissioned it It sort of really evolved into this into this you know wonderful community Um, and I say now it's moving to Radio 5 Live and might become a sort of much bigger thing that uh, you know doesn't have to be explained on other podcasts most people know Um, what it is.
1: Radio 5 Live Alex when it started um, which I can remember but probably not even Steve can and you certainly can't um, used to be known as Radio Bloke um so maybe it's um you know lots of sports and then kind of lots of talk show type politics sounds like an interesting place for this particular show to land up then
2: Yeah and I think it's a definitely a good thing um something I'd be interested to know Steve is whether they talk about medication and uh, the prescription of you know antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication or or is it much less uh, about actually the practicalities of dealing with
3: Yeah I mean they they're, they're not trying to treat anyone um, they're simply there to, you know, hear your story, tell theirs and then play some good music. Um, so it's it's far more uh, straightforward than that.
2: Well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thanks very much, uh, both. Now, on to our main interview this week, where Stephanie Boland is going to be talking to Elaine Casket. And I kid you not on that name, about Death digital afterlives and how Facebook, Twitter and even Amazon accounts are redefining the way we grieve.
4: You're listening to The Prospect Podcast, and I'm here with Elaine Casket to talk about her book, All the Ghosts in the Machine, Illusions of Immortality in the Digital Age. So, Elaine, thank you so much for
5: joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
4: I think... Maybe some, this might sound like quite a specific topic for a book talking about death in the digital age um, but actually the subject's a lot bigger and, and more important than perhaps those of us who haven't experienced the sort of encounters you relate firsthand hand would, would imagine. Tell me a bit about how you came to the subject and why it struck you as so important.
5: Well, I mean, first of all, I'm glad that you've recognized that it is a bigger thing. I think one of my fears was was that people would just think it was about death when actually death is used so much more as a lens to understand more about how we live now. But when I first came across it, it was probably around 2006. Facebook was quite new in terms of the release to the general public. And I happened to stumble across one of these in-memory-of pages that were very common before memorialization practices were widespread at Facebook. And just being a psychologist, I was instantly interested in how people were behaving and interacting with the profile, privacy restrictions being a bit more lax typically than what they are now. Back then, I was also able to look at her in-life profile that she'd maintained whilst alive. And... To compare and contrast the two. And so I became quite academically interested in it. Spoke to loads of practitioners and academics over the years and got kind of tired of talking to the same people because I was realizing more and more with various scandals and Cambridge Analytica and the way that our trust was being hit by the behavior of various big tech companies and the control they were wielding over us. I thought. This is actually an incredibly useful lens to understand more about this. So I didn't just want to write a book about grief or mourning or death per se in the digital age. I wanted to really emphasize that there's no better lesson for how much control big tech wields over us than examining what happens to our data when we die. And so the book, as much as anything, ended up being a lot about that, much more than I expected even. I think that was one of the surprises for me as an author because I'm not quite sure I set out with that intention to really cast that into sharp relief, but that's kind of what happened.
4: (laughs) It's interesting. You have that anecdote where you contact, I think it's Amazon, about what it would take to close down the account of somebody who's deceased and and you're really shocked that there isn't much of a, a privacy check around this, right?
5: Yes. I mean, the reason I rang in the first place was because of somebody that I interviewed for the book who'd had trouble, had been trying unsuccessfully to shut down her father's Amazon sellers account for about a year and a half. And I thought, surely in this time, there must have been some improvement or they must have instituted some kind of protocols because this must be happening all the time. And I found out that no, that wasn't the case. And I was really struck by the fact that I was coming into this journalistically. I wasn't somebody who'd lost somebody. I wasn't in any great distress. I was just intellectually curious about how much they knew. And so I thought, wow, how would somebody's experience be who was in distress, who had lost somebody close to them that was just trying to do what needed to be done to take care of their digital part of their estate and to be confronted with all of this uncertainty from the people who worked at a company that doesn't have sufficiently well-developed protocols. So yeah, there's a lot of practical sides to this that are really important to understand, but there's a lot of moral and ethical dimensions as well from the companies who are trying to take more responsibility um, for what happens uh, and develop protocols for what happens with the data of the deceased, but who perhaps might have their own motivations and incentives for designing it in particular ways. You do have this, I I think one person calls it the death tech space. How are you innovating in the
4: death tech space? Slightly bizarrely. Um, But there is this idea of how you use somebody's digital footprint and companies who want to harness that maybe in quite surprising, or as you you say, in ways that raise certain moral or, or ethical
5: questions? Mm. The interesting thing about the death tech space is increasingly a lot of our tech space is becoming death tech space because people are dying that are associated with data online all the time. And at the moment, I think the latest figures are about 4 billion people were connected online worldwide towards the end of last year when Tim Berners-Lee was talking about the decentralized web 4 billion people and by the end of this century it's predicted that 5 billion people on Facebook will be dead if Facebook were to continue at its highest rate you know its current rate of growth and so a lot of our tech space is the death tech space but yeah some of the possible incentives that companies might have for retaining the data of the deceased might not be immediately apparent but more obvious when you think about it. For example, if you are on Facebook, and you'd quite like to leave it actually, because maybe you're not enjoying it, or maybe you have some issues with it, you'd like to leave it behind, but you have two or three friends on there who have died, and that's their primary memorial, and they don't have a legacy contact that could add you back. If you were to deactivate your account, you're essentially locking yourself out of the cemetery. So increasingly retaining the data of the deceased might be quite a powerful incentive to retain living users. And, of course, the data of the deceased might also be useful for analysis and, you know, purposes and for usefulness of that data. You know, for big tech um, is not necessarily It might be reduced in terms of active purchasing as you go forward. But there's uses to which that data can be put. And additionally, of course, it's the most, in a way, economically efficient model to just retain those profiles rather than sort of subjecting them to individualized considerations or treatment in line with the wishes of the estate. So just sort of saying, well, we have a blanket policy where we do this. It's easier Um, and requires less resource because to treat things on a case-by-case basis on a site with over 2 billion people, that's a lot. But of course, Facebook's the only tip of the iceberg, really. It's not just social media profiles that constitute our digital footprint. It's a lot more than that, which is something I talk about in the book as well. You talked for a moment there about the idea of being friends with a a
4: person who's died on Facebook. Um, Talk to me a little bit about this analogy of the shoebox of memories that you use in the book, where you walk through that idea of what it feels like to have online objects or online memories or photographs apparently taken from you, and what that can be like for living users.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the advantages of the online context and data that we leave behind is that it can be accessible, potentially, to lots of different people, people who might not otherwise have access to certain memorabilia. And it's there 24-7. It's access to a community of mourners. but We tend to place a lot of trust or faith that the data that we store in certain places online will just be there, that we can count on it and we can rely on it. Um, And so the experience of going online one day to find something that you'd always counted on was gone, a whole archive of photos and memories and all of those things, um, can be like a second death. It's something that you don't have any control over. And the analogy that I put in the book is if you had a shoebox of photos and letters and memorabilia of a very good friend who died, and one day they were a knock at the door and their parents came in and Came into your house silently and took the box and took it away and destroyed it, that would be an illegal act. They'd be trespassing and they'd be destroying your property. But next of kin might be able to do that uh, with a Facebook profile, or the person themselves may have ticked the box that said, I want this deleted after death, and you might not know that that had occurred. So something can disappear out from under you. I mean, it's a little bit paradoxical. All of this. Marie Kondo and, you know, digitalizing your office and getting rid of all your physical stuff because you can store all that kind of stuff online. There's a huge trend for that, but we still have Egyptian papyrus scrolls, whereas because of changes in hardware, software, coding, and the vicissitudes of businesses that run various websites, our data could actually stick around for five years, 10 years, less than that, but more than that before disappearing into a kind of 21st century digital dark ages. So that can be really consequential for the immediate people we leave behind, losing access to our you know, digital remains, but also could be consequential for history. There's
4: such a cultural context to it as well, isn't there? You have this anecdote, I think, relatively early on where you go to Ireland to talk about this subject and you're really surprised that people have a different relationship to digital memorials and how you think about death. But to work with this data a certain way is so dependent on how people not only think about death but think about whether your online identity is an accurate representation of, of yourself or how things should be preserved or shouldn't be... Preserved, it's enormously contingent, isn't it?
5: Yeah. My trip to Ireland was really useful for me in reminding me the importance of local culture and just how local cultures of grief and mourning can be. And this is the challenge. I mean, Facebook just introduced a new raft of changes to its, or features to its legacy, um, you know, memorialization practices. And they're sort of trying to get it right. And they say, we've consulted people of all different faiths. And so we've eliminated this thing or increased this thing that could, you know, kind of so as to kind of make things better. But there's no one rule book, a universal rule book for grief. All sorts of things affect that, including local culture. And so platforms like that, their attempts to kind of get it right, are always going to be flummoxed by the idiosyncrasy of grief experiences and needs and wants as well as by all those diverse cultures. You get grief policing happening all over on the internet saying, oh, there's too much of that and not enough of that and you should be saying this, you shouldn't be saying that. And it's like these individual and local cultures from all around the world coming together and everybody trying to figure it out. And obviously that's very hard to do. There's an issue of
4: different laws as well isn't there, I know we've heard so much recently about how difficult it is to police an entity like Facebook that's global, because it's very hard. I mean the example we hear a lot is about tax competition, but even in data privacy and data storage to to have these new kind of hyper-connected entities and have to apply different countries regulations is a, a huge challenge, I mean is there research on what the law says about your data after you die in different places or are we still catching up?
5: Well, the law is very sluggish in this respect. GDPR, which of course just came into effect in May 2018, uh, didn't touch it. They said, this doesn't apply to the data of the dead. We'll leave it to the member states. Well, laws of succession are already some of the least harmonized laws worldwide. There's some kind of global conventions for say intellectual property, but even intellectual property, which usually falls to your heirs, doesn't really know what to do with digital stuff or how to classify it doesn't have tangibility or does it doesn't have value or does it you know so the laws of most lands don't cover it and so it ends up being at sort of a platform level so the thing that you know Facebook says oh tick here if you want this or that done or if you want this or that person to have control of your data well in many places that's not even legally enforceable they don't tell you that but it's not legally enforceable it's kind of like Contractual terms with Facebook, which again is interesting because once upon a time contracts dissolved once you were dead. You weren't hold, you know, you couldn't be held to them anymore. But it's kind of strange because certain big tech companies like Facebook are essentially holding the same terms of the contract intact with a deceased person and privileging their presumed interests over the interests of anybody else, like next of kin. So we have this traditional set of expectations influenced by a more material culture, a physical culture. And then we're thinking, oh, well, this will apply, right? And most of the time, it doesn't. So I think that legal systems and regulatory bodies, they've got to give up trying to kind of create this bolt-on Frankenstein's monster thing where they're trying to make pre-digital laws work for a digital context. Because most of the time it doesn't work well at all you kind of have to strip it back to first principles and say these systems don't work for these entities these laws don't work for these concepts it's not enough to think a bit outside the box you need a whole new zone Uh, but law is very slow and sluggish and it doesn't always work that way and some of the people who enact it are not necessarily au fait with the characteristics of the digital environment and digital things. So should we're talking here in the UK, should
4: I for instance be creating a digital section of my will to be enforced or is even that kind of a vain hope that it would be be followed we're just kind of not there yet.
5: Knock yourself out. You're you're more <laughs> than welcome to I think that it is a good idea to at least have conversations about you know the your finitude and the fate of your digital data with people that you love or to record it as a wish but it's as of yet it doesn't attain legal enforceable status it doesn't have it doesn't pass the tangibility and value tests that we have here in the UK so residents of the UK who are say Facebook users can stipulate a legacy contact and tick the various boxes but at the end of the day that might not be enforceable so just like we essentially always entrust our loved ones and executors to carry out as many of Our wishes that we can. We can talk about it. We can say what we want. But more important, I think it's just important to live your life in such a way that your digital house will be in some kind of reasonable order at such time that you get hit by a bus. You know, if you think about material and digital, you know, if our digital things were like our material things. We'd all be extreme hoarders. And after we died, our loved ones would be coming into this house stacked to the rafters with undifferentiated kind of amounts of data that nobody can make sense of and might give up in despair. So I think that one of the things that we can do is live a more elegant, spare, edited, curated digital existence, tidying our digital house frequently so that there's less complexity to manage when it does come to the time that we die. And hopefully by that time, not too long from now, fingers crossed, legal bodies and regulatory bodies start getting with the program and provide us more guidance because big tech companies who have profit as their primary interest shouldn't be writing the rule book on these things. We're talking about what your loved ones
4: will do um, after you die, but you do have one of the slightly more unusual encounters in this book with um, a gentleman who's creating chatbots. Um, so that your loved ones perhaps can have some kind of what feels like a live encounter with you after you die tell me a little yeah. bit about that because i think that's something readers will go
5: that's quite a macabre <laughs> principle it's so funny when i'm writing about these things i always forget because i'm immersed in this kind of area i assume everybody's heard about these things or everybody knows about uh, you know eternity or marius or zaha who's the founder of Eternami. and he set out to just think about digital legacy websites and doing videos and final goodbyes and so on and so forth and he started researching how people took this up or didn't take this up and he thought well no the only thing to do really is to kind of make an app for which there's an incentive to be feeding it with your data throughout your life so that it's you know giving you something in return Um, but also then when you die, it kind of leaves this approximation of you, a kind of avatar with which your loved ones can interact, which of course is um, dramatized in that very well-known Black Mirror episode called Be Right Back, the Charlie Brooker written episode, which is a fantastic primer on what could be possible just a little bit around the corner. Um, And so in that episode, the Black Mirror episode, you got both the sense of the bereaved woman craving that contact with the ongoing representation of her dead fiance, Um, but then the kind of uncanny horror aspect that came into it as well. And I think that at the moment anyway, we're at that point where there's something fascinating about that possibility that there could be an avatar of us that carries on and is capable of that kind of interaction or artificial intelligence, but not quite sure why we want that what it would get us, whether it's something that we really care to explore or hold at arm's length. And in that sense, one scholar's talked about us being in an era of spectacular death. He says that until recently, we were in this era of um, um, uh, forbidden death where, you know, with the industrial revolution, the ability to kind of sequester the sick into hospitals and the kind of dead over here life and death gradually separating and not talked about, not in contact with it. But now, we see death and the dead everywhere online. We're exposed to it constantly, through this very immediate media. So on one hand, it's very close to us, and the other hand, it's kind of distanced or mediated through our technologies. We're all sort of watching it and fascinated with it. But it's a kind of a spectacle that occurs at a safe distance. Um, So we look at these possibilities with interest, And fascination, but also with a kind of horror or, or uncanniness when it gets closer to us and our loved ones and our situation.
4: It's quite fair. I don't think he'll listen to this, but I'm not sure my partner would want the kind of 5 p.m. text every day saying, what do you want for tea? Which is, I, th- I think, all you'd need to do to accurately yeah. <laughs> represent oh, our digital conversation. You know,
5: and geo technologies where there you are and you're passing the Eiffel Tower and a message comes up and it says, oh, you know, I so wish I could be there with you. We always talked about going to Paris, you know, kind of, <laughs> you know, these kinds of things, you know, are possible now, but surprisingly or unsurprisingly, the uptake of them in terms of people really engaging with it. It's it's so interesting to talk to some of these developers who think that certain things are going to be really desirable. um, um, And then finding out that, you know, actually, oh, you know, I thought I had this huge market for these things because everybody dies. And maybe the need for immortality or for our loved ones to be digitally immortal isn't quite as acute as certain developers think it is.
4: Just to finish off, you talked there about the idea that our notion of death has changed. There is this moment in the book where you talk about receiving these sort of uncanny messages, and y- it occurs to you that it's the same plotline of the film, P.S. I Love You, <laughs> which is a really funny moment. Um, and it also put me in mind of kind of other works art that have been about these encounters. So um, Tony Harrison has this poem... Um, where he keeps his parents phone numbers in his new diary is there a step change in how we are relating to memorialization or do you think it's it's an extension of how we've always tried to keep these things alive um, and if it's the former where do you where do you kind of see us going next with this
5: well i mean continuing bonds with the dead has existed across cultures and you uh, know across millennia and Really, as each new communication technology has emerged, it's been pulled into service to try to connect to the dead. So whether that's photography and spook photographs or the phonograph, which Thomas Edison said, oh, maybe we can make one that's sensitive enough to pick up the voices of the World War One dead or even the spirit rapping in seances and then spirituals in the spiritualism 19th century was an echo of the telegraph, which was the communication technology of the day. But what's different now is the extent to which our modern dead live in the tech already so much so that the data of the dead or their sort of shadows or the ghosts of them are everywhere we might not even know when we're encountering one we might encounter say a blog that influences us or a TripAdvisor review or an amazon review and think oh you know and that might influence you in some way not knowing whether the person is dead or alive so the dead are much more an integrated part of society now, much more than perhaps they've ever been at any point in history in a sort of active and influential way. So that is new. As our technologies enable more artificially intelligent ongoing entities to exist online, as then People who once existed in a physical form in the world will seem that much more active and intelligent in an online context, potentially. And then that's going to raise a whole host of issues, both societal and ethical and moral and legal. Do such entities have rights? Are they considered to have consciousness? Should they be able to vote? Should they serve on juries? You know, what kind of role are they going to play in society when we enter that life 3.0 kind of world that Max Tegmar talks about um, in his book. And so it's, it's, that's not so far around you know, the bend as, as we think, uh, which is all the more reason why we need to start looking at these issues fuller in the face now, which may involve getting over a little bit of our own death anxiety to examine them. Elaine, thank you. Yes, thank you for having me. And that's
1: all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Elaine Casket, who's All the Ghosts in the Machine, is about to come out. Thanks also to Alex Dean and Steve Bloomfield, who you heard from earlier in the podcast here in the heart of Westminster. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. If you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, then please do leave us a
0: rating and a review, which really does help. We'll see you next week, and goodbye.